From getting across borders to keeping them safe, the chiefs now switches focus from those at the top of the travel and hospitality industry to those leading the way in the world of security and diplomacy. Joining me at Monocle's HQ here in Zurich for today's edition of the Chiefs is Ambassador Pelvi Pulli. Head of Security Policy at the Federal Department of Defence, Civil Protection and Sport in Switzerland since 2018, the native Finn has a wide remit. From more immediate crisis management strategies to the longer-term management of Swiss security policy and its forces, Ambassador Pulley is a crucial decision-maker on many of the nation's most pressing issues. With the fighter jet referendum dominating news headlines last autumn, we start today's conversation there, moving on to discuss everything from the challenge of conscripting women to how to respond to increasingly sophisticated cyber warfare. Plus, we find out how Switzerland's renowned neutrality operates in reality. I'm Tyler Brule, and this is The Chiefs on Monocle 24. Pelvi, first, thanks very much for joining us. Some Monocle listeners might have heard you back in September when we were in St. Moritz. You were talking about a variety of different things. We were seven months into this pandemic, but one of the big topics at the time was, of course, This fighter aircraft acquisition, we hadn't had a referendum in Switzerland at that time. The referendum has since happened. It was very close and probably much closer than people thought in terms of the country voting not to go for these new aircraft. You are going for these new aircraft. And I'm wondering, where are we in in this process? And maybe some people who aren't familiar with the story are probably wondering, why does a small landlocked country that you can fly over in probably 10, 15 minutes, even less, why does this country need its own intercept capability? Well, we are in the process right now. We are concluding the evaluation on the technical side of the issue. And then we have a government decision by the end of June. That's according to the plan. We're still on track. And the decision is political. It's going to be based on, on one side, on the, on the technical evaluation results. And on the other hand, the government is completely free to take a decision on other grounds as well. It'll be a combination. And why do we need aircraft? As long as you have armed forces, you're an independent country, you don't want to just defend the country with land forces or use uh, the armed forces for uh, supporting civilian authorities. You also want to be ready to uh, defend against threats from the air. And beyond that, of course, we need to have uh, aircraft for air policing, which is a daily task. Pelvi, when people think about Switzerland, of course, they think about neutrality. They think about a country which is is non-aligned in so many ways in, in classic geopolitical terms. And yet, of course, there is this new inbound aircraft coming. There is obviously this issue of you now have a, a 24-7 intercept capability. Again, many might think, well, why does a neutral country, why do you need to be able to have a 24-7 intercept capacity when you have powerful nations, when it comes to air forces around you, the Germans, the French? Why is it necessary? Well, the intercept capability is something that we always wanted to have for 24-7, which has had delay in this process. And we have now managed to to close the gap between 10 in the evening and 6 in the morning. But that doesn't mean that it's not a great leap because 90% of the air traffic it takes place during the day between uh, the morning and the evening, basically. So what we have now is just we have completed the last step and we want to be able and we are able to to scramble very quickly if there's threat from the air. Uh, we've had some cases in the last couple of years, some of them are very notorious, and that prompted the wish of the government to go faster and have this capability. But like I said, it's not a big, big deal because we were almost there just previously. Let's look at Switzerland in Europe at the moment. Of course, as we were saying, here is a country which is which is landlocked. Uh, here is a country which is globally known for being incredibly affluent. Here is a country which 
rightly or wrongly, likes to lay claim to being the home of multilateralism. It is home to, of course, a variety of, of, of course, major NGOs and, of course, private sector, an array of, of course, uh, major international uh, headquarters. So the Swiss brand, there, there are many things that, that underpin it. And interestingly, a lot of people also think about its conscription, that, of course, you know, this is a topic in the country. Is there a big discussion, Pelvi, in this time about topics of, you know, do you need to be uh, conscripting uh, young men? Uh, young women are not conscripted in this country. Yeah, do you need to be buying fighter aircraft? That was, that was obviously a, a very close call. And also, is the country fit for, of course, what a new world of conflict might look like? Let's start with conscription. The um, conscription system in Switzerland is very ingrained in the Swiss way of thinking. It goes back to the concept of militia, which is a concept that wants to combine citizens and soldiers, a kind of idea of service to community. And it has two aspects that you have a long period of time, you stay in the armed forces, which makes big armed forces, and you can actually become a very high ranking officer while uh, continuing your civil career. The challenge today is that the militia system is that there are a lot of long absences from workplace. And we have faced challenges trying to convince the economy that it's still a good idea to have officers in their, in their companies because they, are, they have to leave the work like for many weeks at a time, one time once a year at least. So we are facing a situation where we have too many people leaving prematurely the armed forces and the numbers are going down and we have trouble manning the units, which is of course a very bad word today because you should say filling up the units because we just don't want to fill them only with men. And this brings me to the topic you raised about conscription extending it maybe to Swiss women. Well, this is, of course, very political, but I would say extending a drastic obligation to half of the country is, is not a decision that should be taken lightly. It's an interesting topic because this is a period of inclusion. We want, of course, uh, to see a level a level playing field, a level battleground, whatever it may be. And of course, we see many countries where women play a frontline role. And so it strikes me as, as rather interesting because I, I, you know, if you read recent surveys, you know, people do regard Switzerland again as a pretty honest broker. Some will sort of question, okay, maybe are there enough women in boardrooms uh, or not? Uh, which is which is maybe something for the private sector. But I'm wondering why this resistance to bring women and to, of course, to, to conscript women. Well, I mean, it has become a current topic right now. But to introduce this obligation to women, uh, probably two conditions would have to be fulfilled. First, that we need to have a real need, a compelling uh, need and reason to extend the compulsory service for national security. It shouldn't just be decided on a light factual base. Secondly, there has to be political acceptance. A large part of the country or the population would probably think today that equality of sexes has not been realized in other areas. So they might think that this has to be realized first before we talk about more obligations towards women. But currently we are working on a report. We have a mandate by the government and we are producing at least part of the report this summer and uh, next part maybe later on. And one of the topics that we're looking into, how would a future conscription system look like in Switzerland? And one of the issues we are looking or options is introducing compulsory service to women. Just one of many options. And it would probably take years of conversation and dialogue inside the country with the population to see if that has any chance and if we really need it. Because it would also entail a change of the constitution, which is no light issue. I would imagine and also then it's probably when it comes to hardware as well, it also means... Uh, yeah, a complete change of, of barracks arrangements and, and all kinds of other things that would also go with it in an operational environment as well. Do you have any read at the moment, and I would imagine there's going to be polling and there's going to be a lot of research that goes into it, 
what the sentiment is. Do you have a feeling that actually women today would say, well, yes, you know, this this is this is par for the course if we if we want to be at a level playing field and I'm I'm for conscription or is it a little bit more nuanced than that? Well, it's difficult to say. We are making a survey and we are asking these questions to have more data about the sensitivities of the population. But what we are already doing and very much engaged in this is since actually since we have a new defense minister who is woman, a lot of initiatives have been taken to attract more women to the armed forces on a voluntary basis. And there's an action plan. There's going to be a gender perspective by the armed forces by the end of the year. Right now, we have 0.9% of women in the armed forces, which is really little. And we want to increase that by far. But the short and medium term goal is to attract women uh, because uh, thanks to more better conditions and we want to make it easier for women to, to enter on a voluntary basis. And the second part of the conversation would touch the issue of obligation, but we're not there yet. Does that mean also looking at this next phase, also how you market the armed forces as well? Uh, what happens if you, of course, you, you serve your time as a conscript, you might then pursue something professionally, or as you said, also in this hybrid model in Switzerland, where you can be a general, but also you have a day job as well. Is there something which is maybe missing in the the, the advertising and marketing of this? Uh, because as you said, there has to be some type of some point of attraction. Well, uh, one thing that we've been working on is have equivalence of the military training recognized by a civilian side, the employees, and being recognized as part of education at university, for instance. So this is a a big step. There has been information campaigns uh, recently about women. It was in German, Sicherheit ist auch weiblich. Security is also feminine. So there are a lot of initiatives that are working. And we're trying to figure out what exactly, what is the, the reason that women... Uh, especially now that we talk about women, why do they not want to go to the armed forces? What is the thing that we need to remove and change so that the threshold would be lower? And actually also on this topic where the armed forces has to conduct a uh, a survey also this year and make a sort of a scientific analysis on what are are exactly the issues that, that are responsible for not having enough women in the armed forces. If we rewind over the last year, Pelvi, if we look at the at the last 12 months, if I have it correct, was this the biggest period of mobilization since uh, the Second World War that we, of course, saw deployments of, of course, of vehicles and manpower in this case to build field hospitals, to, to work on logistics? Or is it not as unprecedented as we might have read? I think it's right to, to call it unprecedented. We didn't have this magnitude of mobilization since the Second World War. We had a top number of 8,000 troops that we were able to mobilize. Eventually, we had several thousand, up to four, four and a half thousand that were deployed and were in operation. They were actually really helping out concretely the civilian authorities in hospitals, in medical installations, in transportation of patients. So very tangible, concrete assistance. So yes, we were all taken by surprise by this pandemic and the speed of the events and how it developed overnight almost into a major crisis. And we learned a lot about this armed forces deployment. Uh, We were uh, happy to discover that the mobilization worked quite well, uh, the so-called e-alert as well. And we had a lot of motivated people and very highly qualified to do the job. The downside is that we also learned in the first wave that we have to um, set the conditions for the deployment of the armed forces quite high because uh, we cannot have armed forces replace competent and available civilian competence and powers that can be uh, deployed as well, because the armed forces has to remain a strategic reserve of the government and not kind of replace civilian 
know-how that is available and can be paid for and can be can be engaged. So we learned from this uh, from the first wave and second wave. We used more restraint and wanted to have the armed forces only the places where actually it was really really needed. A lot of people in this time are scratching their heads because they know that, of course, Switzerland is small. That there is the advantage of, of course easy logistics, that there is, of course, a significant uh, number of people who are very, very capable uh, in this country. And at the same time, uh, people look at this and then they look at, of course, the rapid rollout, of course, of of vaccines in the US, in in the UK, Israel as well. And many people also pointed to the fact that the military has been very involved in all of those countries in some capacity, in in some level. Is that a, a criticism that you're hearing? It's probably not one that you need to defend because decisions are, of course, made by other departments in in government. Uh, But nevertheless, um, I wonder if does it come to your office? Why aren't we using uh, this military in this country to get the vaccines done? Well, again, it's always a political decision on how we deploy the armed forces to help civilian authorities. And it was a parliament decision. And they detailed exactly for which purposes and tasks the armed forces should be deployed. And carrying, carrying out vaccinations was not part of that. And if there had been a request by, by the cantons and other departments, it would also have to be a government decision, parliament decision to expand the scope of the armed forces missions. But this was one uh, area that we were convinced, and we still are, that there's enough civilian capability to carry out this role. So we need to be careful when we deploy the armed forces. They're not just good for everything, especially so that we have militia system because these people are pulled from their jobs in the economy and they also suffer from that. We've touched on the topic, of course, of intercept capability, uh, of course, the, the topic of, of course, of women and, and conscription. What are the other big, big themes? And, and of course, one of them, uh, I guess, as well, is in line, of course, with this intercept capability. There is a procurement program. There's a competition on right now, which, of course, was around this with this referendum. You have four, four fighter aircraft uh, on, on the table that you'll have to choose by really the end of the second half of this year. Maybe that's one thing we can spend a bit of time on that. But what are the other, would you say, the other hot topics? Well, right now, since we were talking about pandemic that is related to that, is we are re- reviewing the whole procedures of crisis management of the government level. It probably didn't work quite as badly as it was perceived by some. We have this uh, this system that has very strong departments, ministries, and quite weak central power in the government. So we work very much in the chain of command, if you like, and we have ad hoc systems with, which don't uh, always reply to the standards of professional uh, crisis managers, but have, has the advantage that people know what they're talking about. They are actually real-time professionals. They have the means and the, the power to take decisions and go very quickly to the government, which is not the case for for professional crisis manager managers that actually during uh, not between the crises don't really have a proper job to do. One topic that was very topical just recently was military peacekeeping. This is the uh, the minister's wish to uh, increase a Swiss contribution. And we came up with a report uh, and conclusion that Switzerland should focus more on high-quality assets. And we're talking about air transportation, maybe drones, tactical transportation in the operation area of peace support. Uh, This is one possibility and send more specialists. And we are working with the armed forces uh, to to achieve that goal. So so just to be clear, that means that... You might contribute. I mean, Switzerland does not have a heavy lift aircraft capacity. I know that that's something which is being looked at. So it's things like this. It's high level material that you would be offering rather than, okay, a bit of a cliche term, but rather than boots on the ground per se. 
Exactly. I mean, we have nothing against the boots on the ground, but it looks that the international demand increasingly for countries like Switzerland is high value assets. And we're not t- talking about uh, transportation aircraft because there's enough capabilities in Europe for this. You can you can lease this, you can get organized in, in a pool. But what the international, especially UN, are lacking are uh, heavy uh, transport helicopters. So this is something that we might want to, to want to look uh, in terms of acquisitions in the coming years. But nothing has been decided. It's just one plan. It would fit nicely with this plan to increase our contributions in a qualitative way in, in peace support. When we monitor the news headlines, you know, even if we look at, at breaking stories over the past few months, we've seen the collapse of you know, part of Google's network in certain parts of Europe, of course, we've seen it. You know, we see constant attacks on private sector actors, on, on state actors uh, in the realm of, of cybersecurity. I'm curious, right now you're, you sit in the, in the middle of this competition to buy four, four fighter aircraft and, and the whole country, of course, you know, gets involved in that. But I'm wondering what happens in cybersecurity because it, there you don't have these big targets. Uh, you know, if you go out and decide that, that you know, you need another server farm. Maybe it's not as sexy as a fighter aircraft. Maybe it's not as symbolic. But do we get to a place, Pelvi, where also cybersecurity is going to have some big questions that also go to the people as well? Well, I think cyber is very much on the top of, of people's minds. It's something you can't see, but we all feel we all feel vulnerable with our IT systems. And we know that there are daily attacks and we monitor them closely. Cyber has become omnipresent topic in the last couple of years, and not just for capabilities. It's not something like you say. It's not systems we procure. It's more like a people and expertise and know how we need to have everywhere. Uh, so it's kind of not a visible thing, but it's very much there. And we are uh, looking at cyber as a horizontal issue, but we're also planning to to set up a cyber command in the armed forces. This is also a, a plan that is for the next couple of years. And we definitely have the legal means and the active, the kind of the uh, effective means to engage, to uh, defend Switzerland from attacks in an active and passive manner. So we have these regimes in place that we would be able to do that. But it's a very tricky issue when you think of in terms of international law, cyber, it can lead to counterattacks very quickly, escalation, unforeseen consequences. So one has to use these means with a lot of restraint it's a very tricky weapon you have because you often you cannot attribute exactly who was behind an attack and if you if you retaliate uh, the consequences might just very quickly speed, spin out of control and on that and let's pick up on the topic of neutrality and of course this is this is very curious it's very new territory when you think about uh, cybersecurity but also cyber cyber attacks is it a constitutional topic pelvi then for a counterattack to happen because you think about okay uh, a country uh, of course is not saying that switzerland is actually peace loving but it is neutral but is a country and, and constitutionally is switzerland allowed to launch a counteroffense or even a preemptive attack in this sense because again if it involved helicopters over the borders that would be that would be very different but again we're in this kind of gray unseen untouchable world in a way it's very hard today i mean there's no exact definition that is waterproof what does what constitutes a armed attack in terms of cyber that would uh, legitimately trigger self defense 
from the point of view of international law. So these questions have not been, they cannot be defined exactly because you can't see exactly what's going on. You can't see who is behind it and what are the consequences of counterattack. We are working on these issues with our partners uh, internationally to set up standards for use of, of these means. Switzerland is certainly not the country to go quickly for uh, preemptive attacks, like you, like you phrased that. Uh, but um, there are a lot of grey areas. That's why we need to look at this carefully. The whole neutrality issue is that, of course, we want to steer away from armed conflicts. This is what neutrality is all about. So you don't want to use unwisely a very potent weapon in your hand. This is certainly not the plan. On the topic of non-lethal options and and certainly a a non-lethal arsenal, do you see Switzerland playing a bigger role when it comes to mediation topics? And of course, that is for many of your friends in Geneva and Bern to deal with as well. But we also talk about information wars. Does Switzerland have a role there? Because I've been speaking to NGOs. We had Peter Maurer on this program some time ago. There we're sort of delving into the topics of, of information and how critical it is that people are getting the right information. And whether you're talking about around what could be a thorny election in a country, there are many areas that, that this touches. And this does have to do, of course, with issues of diplomacy, of, yeah, of certainly of defense as well. Can Switzerland be a broker in that topic? Uh, I mean, well, I, should, I guess you probably say it is a broker, but is it is there room for you to be more and also a non-lethal territory on an international stage? Well, you mentioned mediation. Of course, a neutral status can, in best case, strengthen Switzerland's position to be uh, helpful in a conflict situation, to diffuse tensions and be a mediator. If the other part of what's your question refers to information disinformation, propaganda issue that has become very tangible in the last uh, couple of years, let's say. We are very much looking into this and it's going to be part of the uh, white book on Swiss security policy that is going to be produced very soon. It's going to be consulted uh, in, a, in a broad manner in the Swiss uh, population. We have looked into this topic because it has also become very concrete for Switzerland. This is a different, one of the main differences, I would say, in the report that we're producing now and four years ago. Disinformation and propaganda has become a real problem also for countries like Switzerland. If you look out over the horizon, we've had a year of, of cooperation. We've, we've seen many countries, of course, uh, stretching across the borders to bring in patients suffering from you know, severe COVID cases. You know, we've certainly seen a lot of, of sharing of, of, of information. We're now at a period where, of course, even countries that have uh, oversupply of vaccines um, are, of course, offering these to, to other nations. At the same time, the Pelvi, we've also seen that this has been a time of, yeah, I wouldn't call it quite hoarding, but also countries really want to make sure that their supply chains are intact, uh, that they have production capability, uh, that maybe things need to be happening a little bit closer to home. We shouldn't be worrying about supplies coming from the far sides of the earth. How does the future look to you? It's a very interesting question. I think it's probably uh, fair to say that it's too early to say in which direction things are going. If you look at the first reactions of, of states inside the European Union on the European continent in the beginning of the pandemic, the first reactions were definitely national. There was hardly any cooperation, coordination, national interest, they really prevailed. But we shouldn't be surprised because that was a very new situation, came very quickly. It took us all by surprise, at least most of us. But I would say that 
European Union and NATO, they recovered nicely. They got their act together quite quickly and moved over to a cooperation and better coordination. And you mentioned the um, international supply chains. Uh, this is something that certainly European countries and Switzerland are looking in the future. We want to reduce dependencies on critical goods and, and services. We want to see what we can produce in the country. But we need to be careful not to fall into the illusion that we could be autonomous in production of all critical goods and, and services. What we need to have maybe is interdependencies, because that would be beneficial for cooperation in a crisis. Just before we go, and if we continue looking over the horizon, so we have the fighter jet topic, which of course will have some type of resolution or answer by, by mid-year. There's also another topic, of course, around air defence, uh, that the country is obviously looking at some type of surface-to-air missile acquisition as well. What else is on the on the shopping list? Because any time we talk about, of course, the world of, of of defense, people always like to look like to point to ministries, you know, negative and positive, saying you know, look at they're they're out there spending money buying things that we may or may not need, or they're going to take too long, or they're going to run over budget. Hopefully not. But what else is Switzerland looking at moving forward? Like you mentioned, the uh, highest priorities right now is renewing our fleet of fighter aircraft and uh, ground-based air defense. We invest a lot in communication systems. Cyber is more like people than equipment, like I said. Then we will look into a period in, in a very few years where large systems of the armed forces, the land forces, come to the end of their life cycle and we need to replace them. There might be a time where seeing the very quick pace of technological developments and artificial intelligence and all the applications that you have, new platforms coming up, that we might have to consciously accept capability gaps for a short period of time or maybe some years in, in the ex- expectation that new platforms will arrive and the money will be more wisely spent in them. So these are the issues we're looking at in the coming years. Uh, and just finally, uh, and maybe this is, we, we might want to insert this somewhere else, when people think of, of Switzerland, and of course, it's, it's geographic position, uh, it, it's of course, it's, it's political neutrality, all of the things that this country is known for. Let's say things really go wrong, Pelvi, and tanks roll across the border in the Baltics, things start to move through Poland, and things really start to unravel. Is there a defense policy stated in three bullet points that this is how this country defends itself? Well, I don't know about three bullets, but if there was to be uh, an armed attack on on European soil, I mean, we have an armed conflict on European soil in East Ukraine for the time being, as we speak, which is very sad. But if we had a real threat towards Switzerland, be it from the air, be it from uh, from the ground, be it via cyber attacks, that would amount, be considered the level of attack on the country or our neighboring countries. That would be the time to consider cooperating with neighboring countries. This is the thing about neutrality. If you're attacked or you uh, fear imminent attack, then you are completely, from the point of view of international law, allowed to cooperate militarily with the neighbors. And this is why we have what we call interoperability. We train with our neighbors. It's simply common sense. In peace support, in procurement, in infrastructure exchange, we have a lot of points in common. And this interoperability would allow us, would enable us to also cooperate them militarily in the case of defending the country if it has to happen. If it came to a point where the country was really under, not just cyber threat, but under under real threat, is the Swiss policy one of defend the cities in a more 
guerrilla style? Is it everyone, you know, there's the famous sort of myth that everyone retreats under a big mountain near Lucerne. Uh, what, what, what actually happens? I mean, you drive around the country, you still see tank traps. Now, those tank traps are probably still not so useful. So I'm wondering if there is a sort of a stated policy that, okay, yeah, you let you let them come in, but then you try to you try to intercept them at the at the valley passes or no i think we have passed that concept <laughs> of the réduit national of the second world war what we are looking at today uh, when we try to uh, imagine how would look how would an armed conflict look that is directly concerning Switzerland, we would expect it to be begin in a hybrid sort of way. This is what actually warfighting has become today, the conflict, conflicts that we observe in Europe and outside Europe. It's not just tanks rolling over the border, this is the past. So we expect some destabilization efforts to take place, disinformation, maybe infiltration, uh, all kinds of, of stealth methods, because the uh, essence of hybrid warfare is that the uh, attacker tries to remain stealth as, as long as possible and not to be held directly responsible for the aggression, because that would allow it to, to continue and undermine uh, institutions and democracy. Uh, so this is something we might be looking at when we think, how would it look? And in this situation, the armed forces would certainly be there to help police and help civilian authorities until we really think we reach the uh, the level of complete armed attack. And then they would have not just a subsidiary role, but direct what we call original role in defending the country. But these are scenarios we make. These are ideas that we try to see how would it how would it look. And we are thinking of hybrid warfare today, not the tanks rolling over the border. But there's still the capability, if I understand it correctly, that if you are currently active, that you have your rifle at home. And if you're called up that you are, of course, and your uniform is at home as well, that you go and get your weapons and you report into the, the caserna to the, to, the, uh, to the armory and you are, are deployed. The type of response or, or ability to respond still exists in this country. Absolutely. It's the uh, essence of the militia system uh, that you have the citizen soldier and they could be very quickly mobilized. And we saw last year during the pandemic how well it worked. We were actually quite surprised. Nicely, how well it po- worked. Positively surprised. Positively surprised. <laughs> that happens. That happens. So, of course, we would rely on this system and also on the units that are standing units and full professional forces. So we have a combination. So I am confident that would work. My thanks to Ambassador Pelvi Pulley for joining us for this week's edition of The Chiefs. Next week, we stay in the world of security, but head a little further north to meet Finland's General Esa Pulkinen. This episode of The Chiefs was produced and researched by Paige Reynolds and edited by Steph Chungu with the assistance of Desiree Bendley. I'm Tyler Brule in Zurich. Thank you very much for listening. Music.